This is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service. I'm Valerie Sanderson and in the early hours of Monday the 4th of March, these are our main stories. America's Vice President Kamala Harris piles pressure on Israel to come to an agreement with Hamas over a ceasefire in Gaza. We're in Haiti, where armed gangs in Port-au-Prince have stormed a prison, helping up to 4,000 inmates escape. Also in this podcast, after a bitterly disputed election campaign, Pakistan has a new prime minister. Mohammad Shahbaz Sharif Saab is declared to have been elected as the prime minister of Islamic Republic of Pakistan. And scientists believe they've solved the mystery about the age of the world's most spectacular sand dunes. The United States is piling more pressure on Israel to reach an agreement with Hamas for a six-week ceasefire in Gaza. Speaking on Sunday, the U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris said that Palestinians had suffered too much for too long. I must address the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. We have seen reports of families eating leaves or animal feed, women giving birth to malnourished babies with little or no medical care, and children dying from malnutrition and dehydration. As I have said many times, too many innocent Palestinians have been killed. There must be an immediate ceasefire. Kamala Harris also called on Israel to do more to allow large amounts of aid into Gaza and said Hamas should release all the hostages. Talks are taking place in Cairo to try to broker a truce, but Israel is refusing to send anyone as it wants Hamas to first give a full list of its hostages who are still alive. Our senior international correspondent Orla Guerin is in Israel and sent us this report from Tel Aviv. A deal, if it comes, could be days away. Several sticking points remain, including a Hamas demand for Israeli forces to pull out of Gaza. The Hamas delegation is in Cairo, along with envoys from Qatar and the US, but without the Israelis. Israel wants information on the condition of its 130 hostages in Gaza. It fears that 31 are already dead. Unless and until this is provided, sources here say it won't send representatives to Cairo. For many in Gaza, a ceasefire cannot come soon enough. In Rafah, this was a day of harrowing loss. Palestinians mourning for 14 members of the Abu Anza family, most women and children. They were victims of Israeli airstrikes, according to hospital officials and Gaza's civil defense. There were about 35 people in the house, says Farouk Abuanza, who lost relatives. Most were children. There were no fighters. The house collapsed on them, three or four stories. In Israel, too, many families are in anguish calling for their loved ones to be freed from the tunnels of Gaza. Our offer is a very uh, warm uh, person, uh, is a family person. 
Ayal Calderon is desperate to see his cousin Offer, a father of four. He says the past five months have been a torment. It's like a hell, you know. We are uh, in some of uh, a loop since the October 7th. We are living this day uh, every day again and again. We have uh, only one goal all these days, to bring him back alive to his family, to his children. This is the only thing that matters. But there will be no homecoming for the hostages without a ceasefire and no respite for those threatened with starvation and death in Gaza. Orla Guerin in Israel. The Haitian capital, Port-au-Prince, is one of the most lawless cities in the world. Armed gangs, which control 80% of the city, according to the United Nations, are at war with the authorities there. On Saturday, they broke into the main prison in Port-au-Prince and freed almost all of the inmates. Haiti's most powerful gang leader is nicknamed Barbecue, and he's got the Prime Minister in his sights. We ask the police and military to arrest Ariel Henry for the liberation of Haiti. Haitians are not our enemy. These weapons that we have are not here to hurt our Haitian brothers, who come from the same place as us. The poor trust us. These weapons are our symbol of freedom. With these weapons, we will liberate the country, and these weapons will change Haiti. The storming of the prison in Port-au-Prince coincided with Mr. Omri's absence in Kenya, where he'd been discussing deploying Kenyan police in Haiti. Harold Isaac is a journalist in Port-au-Prince. So last night there was a major attack against the biggest prison in uh, Haiti, where nearly 3,700 inmates are uh, housed, and uh, roughly the majority of them have left. And who stormed the jail? So it was a coordinated attack uh, perpetrated by the gangs. They had announced it in the last few days, and uh, they had been attacking the jail for the last uh, three days prior to that, and they eventually succeeded. And have there been any injuries or fatalities? So as per the first reports, at least three people died in front of the jail. It's unclear uh, whether it was guards or inmates. But as of this morning, that was the initial tally. So what are the police saying now in Haiti? So no official words from the police at this point. However, the police unions had called for help last night on social media, asking for any police officers that are available and that have weapons and cars to come to the main prison to help with the situation. But is it fair to say that on top of everything else, this means that Port-au-Prince is is absolutely lawless now? Well, the situation is very volatile. It's very fragile. We don't know what to expect from the coming hours and days. And everybody's waiting for a word from the authorities at this point. The prime minister, as of this morning, still abroad, coming back from his trip in Kenya. And for the most part, it seems that the gang's surge of violence this week is in reaction to that visit to Kenya. Now that this agreement has been signed formally with the Kenyan authorities, it's unclear when the Kenyan uh, police officers will arrive and also how the gangs will, you know, react for the rest of the week. And Harold, tell us a little bit about these gangs. They sound extremely violent, well-coordinated 
Uh, it sounds a lot of planning goes into it. What is their relationship with each other? So as of this week, one of the most notorious gang leaders here in Haiti, Barbecue, had uh, called for the union of all the gangs against the government to topple the Prime Minister Ariel Henry and essentially calling this new coalition living together and uh, claiming that they would wage a revolution. So since this announcement, there's been waves and waves of violence sweeping through the city and that ultimately resulted in that uh, jailbreak. Harold Isaac in Port-au-Prince. Over the weekend, hundreds of Russians have visited the grave of the opposition leader Alexei Navalny in Moscow. He was President Putin's fiercest critic and died last month in an Arctic penal colony. The authorities say he died of natural causes, but Mr. Navalny's widow, Yulia, and his political allies say Vladimir Putin ordered his killing. One of those watching the funeral from afar was Natan Sharansky, a Soviet-era political dissident who spent nine years in prison for high treason and espionage before his release back in 1986 and subsequent emigration to Israel. About a year ago, Mr. Sharansky received a letter from Mr. Navalny, who was in a punishment cell at the time. Julian Marshall asked what the letter said. It started, Hello, I am writing to you as the reader to the author. I just read your book, and it reminds me exactly my situation. That was like the beginning of our conversation. And then he said how sad it is that situation became exactly as it was 40 years ago. And he gave me some examples from my book and from his situation. And he was writing that he does hope that next time when they'll have opportunity to change things, they will not permit so easily to go back to this station. And so I immediately answered and said that for me it is like to get letter from my alma mater, and that he probably is the most free person in the world just now, and by his inner freedom, which he keeps in uh, prison, he influences on millions and millions of other people, giving them a message not to be afraid and to be free. And I also joked that I had some kind of a record in those days of the number of days in the punishing cell. But judging from all, he will beat my records, and I want that he will not. Well, unfortunately, it was a black humor. He had beaten all my records, and he didn't survive. And your prison conditions, as I understand it, were, were very similar in this uh, punishment cell yeah. or, or Shih Tzu, I yeah. think, for sure. Yeah. And, and what were those well, conditions? Punishment cell is a very small, very small room. It's very cold, and they take away all the warm clothes. It is three cups of hot water and three pieces of bread a day. Nobody to talk to, nothing to write or read. Officially, this punishment can be no more than 15 days. But then when they want to break political prisoner, they add another 15 days and another 15 days. When I was 100 days at a row, I fell unconscious, so they took me for a few hours out, treated a little bit, and they took back. And so now what I saw with Navalny, and he described it very vividly in his letter, 
they were using the same tactics with him. You have to understand, in the first year, he spent 127 days in punishing cell. In three years, just before he was killed, he spent 300 days in the punishment cell. It's very, very tough. It's as if they already decided to kill him, if not by poisoning, if not by beating, but simply to kill him with keeping in the punishing cell. We don't know exactly how. Whatever it was, Putin has to be blamed for his death. You believe that Western politicians should have done more about Mr. Navalny? Yes, I have to say that in our days, they didn't know much what's happening. But you know that all the free world is fighting for you. And that the leaders of the world, you hope, you expect, are supporting the struggle. And later, when you could speak to these politicians, and now we can read the uh, archives of White House and other places, you can see how practically on every negotiation with Soviet Union, the question of human rights, the question of the fate of famous dissidents like Andrei Sakharov, Yuri Erlov, myself and others, how it was raised and pressure on the Soviet Union was organized. There was direct linkage between the fate of leading political prisoners and the other issues which were of interest to the Soviet Union. And I don't think it exists today at all. Nathan Sharansky. Scientists believe they've solved a mystery about star dunes, the massive sand dunes that look like stars when viewed from above. They're found in many deserts around the world, in Namibia, in the Sahara, in China, and in the Mojave in the United States. But as Georgina Rannard reports, until now there was no way of establishing exactly how old they are. Star dunes are one of Earth's most spectacular natural features. Also called pyramid dunes, they are named after the radiating arms formed by opposing winds blowing on the grains of sand. They make up almost 10% of the world's dunes and can be hundreds of metres high. Experts had long been confused about why star dunes hadn't been found when looking at the layers of rock that make up the Earth's geological history. But now a star dune called Lalalalia in Morocco has been traced back 13,000 years. This knowledge can help scientists better understand the climate of the era. Professor Jeff Duller at the University of Aberystwyth explains how they made the discovery. We use a technique called luminescence dating, which enables us to work out the last time those sands were exposed to daylight, because that tells us when the, the dune formed. So to do that, we have to collect them in the dark and then bring them back and process them uh, under dim red light conditions, a bit like an old-fashioned photographic laboratory. It's almost as if the mineral grains are little rechargeable batteries. They can store energy within the crystals, and that energy comes from radioactivity in the natural environment. The longer they're buried in the ground, the more of that radioactivity they're exposed to, and the energy builds up. We can then get them to release that energy, and they release the energy, and it comes out in the form of light. So actually in our dark laboratory, we see light from these sand grains, and the brighter the light, then the older the sediment grains, the longer it is since they, uh, they've been buried. Professor Jeff Duller. Still to come, Malaysia's transport minister promises to restart the search for the missing jetliner MH370, which disappeared a decade ago. Relatives of the missing react. It's what we wanted to hear, and we hoped for that for a very long time. The truth. That's all we want, until 
we're longing for that day. Weeks after a controversial election in Pakistan produced no outright winner, MPs have voted for the former Prime Minister, Shabazz Sharif, to return to power. He secured 201 votes, defeating his rival, Omar Ayub Khan, who was supported by the jailed former Prime Minister, Imran Khan. Muhammad Shabazz Sharif Saab is declared to have been elected as the Prime Minister of Islamic Republic of Pakistan. But the result was greeted by loud protests from lawmakers who support Imran Khan. I request Mia Muhammad Shahbaz Sharif Saab to take the seat of the Prime Minister of the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. Despite that spattering of applause, the jeering persisted for some time. The anger stems from the disputed election three weeks ago, in which supporters of Imran Khan's PTI party won the most seats, but were forced to run as independents and were unable to form a government. Oliver Conway spoke to our correspondent, Sahar Balakh, who was inside the parliament building in Islamabad as the new prime minister was picked. The voting basically started an hour later and as soon as it started, the opposition benches, especially by Imran Khan's party, they were the ones who created quite a stir. They created quite a stir within the parliament by their protests and everything, their allegations of fraud and rigging in the uh, recent elections. So there was a lot of commotion that we heard within the parliament as well. So as soon as the speaker announced that Shahbaz Sharif has taken 201 votes and uh, his opponent, Omar Ayub, has only gotten 92 votes, there was another uproar and people were like literally booing the fact that Shahbaz Sharif has once again been elected. Uh, so it was basically the problems were basically starting from the opposition benches as well. So just a bit of a background about why the opposition benches were doing so. It's because Imran Khan has been alleging from inside the prison that this election mandate was completely rigged. That's his accusation against the government. He anyway has to uh, pick a bone with the Nawaz Sharif led government or, or now the Shahbaz Sharif led coalition only because he says that, you know, this was all a part of the uh, larger conspiracy against Imran Khan's election in Pakistan against his government in 2022 as a result of which he was ousted from the parliament. So since then there is like, you know, this skirmish between the two, like, you know, a lot of verbal allegations against each other that they have been levelling for a while now. And take us through the, the challenges facing this new government and how difficult it will be to govern given the, the strong sense of feeling among those who support Imran Khan. One of the biggest challenges that this government will have to face, according to a lot of analysts and even political parties that I have spoken to, a lot of legislators told me that how they fear that, you know, economic challenges and political challenges will have to be faced one way or the other. But for that, every political party will have to sit together in Pakistan and they can no longer play that card that they have been victimized or they have been this or that. Because in this case, the larger question of the sovereignty of the country and the fact that these challenges are faced by Pakistan for a while now, especially the economic challenges, but many of them say that how economic challenges cannot be fulfilled unless and until there are political challenges, uh, you know, that are sorted out between the political parties as well. Sahab It is 10 years since the Malaysian airliner MH370 vanished from the skies with 239 people on board. But now a new search for the plane could soon take place. 
Anthony Locke, Malaysia's transport minister, said a proposal from the robotics firm Ocean Infinity to scan the ocean floor is being reviewed. He was speaking to reporters at a memorial event in Kuala Lumpur for the passengers and crew on the plane. As I've mentioned numerous times, as far as Malaysian government, government is concerned, we are committed to that search. And the search must go on. I'm very, very confident that the, uh, the government of Malaysia and the cabinet will approve uh, such proposal. Our Asia-Pacific regional editor, Celia Hatton, told me more. Malaysia has been under pressure to agree to a new search for more than a year now, really. The U.S.-based firm Ocean Infinity, which conducted a search for Malaysia back in 2018 for three months, they didn't come up with anything. And then the search was called off. But for the past few years, researchers who've been studying debris that's believed to come from the plane, some of it has been confirmed. It's washed up on the coast of Africa, other bits uh, that are believed to be from the plane that have washed up on islands in the Indian Ocean. Researchers that have been studying those say they now really believe they know where the plane could be located. Ocean Infinity has been saying for quite some time that they're more than willing to enter into another search. And so it's the Malaysians that have been under pressure. They've been holding off on signing a contract with Ocean Infinity until they said that there was credible new evidence. Relatives really want the search to continue while some answers can be found. We heard from some relatives today at the memorial in Kuala Lumpur. Let's listen to some of them now. It's what we wanted to hear and we hoped for that for a very long time. So I'm so thankful. One day, there'll be someone will come forward and tell us what's really going on. The truth. That's all we want until we're longing for that, yeah, until today. And Celia, if a contract is signed with Ocean Infinity, what would be the details? Do we know? It's believed to be a no-cure, no-fee contract, meaning if Ocean Infinity doesn't find the plane, they don't get paid. Back in 2018, the promise was that they would be paid $70 million if they found the plane. We think it'll be around the same kind of contract this time. And Celia, this saga has been going on, hasn't it, for nearly a decade, and you have been covering it from the beginning. Yeah, that's right. I was one of the BBC's China correspondents living and working in Beijing when news first came that the plane had disappeared. You have to remember the plane was en route to China when it disappeared. It was about an hour into an overnight flight when it veered off course. Many of the passengers it was carrying were Chinese. 150 out of the 239 people on board were from China. So instantly we got news that many of the relatives were gathering at an airport hotel. That's where Malaysia Airlines had told them to gather for news of where the plane could be. And so every day for almost two weeks, we would go to that airport hotel and meet with relatives, speak to them and also try to get information from Malaysian Airlines. It was a heartbreaking time because Every day, the search became more grim. It became more and more apparent that the plane had really disappeared. And those images will really never leave my mind of relatives who at first were hopeful that the plane would be found. And slowly the crowds who came to the airport hotel every day became smaller because hope really began to dwindle. Celia Hatton. 
Europe has been negligent as accepting cocaine and cannabis use leads to corruption and violence. Well, that's according to the mayor of the Dutch city of Rotterdam, Ahmed Abutaleb, who says a lax attitude to recreational drug use, including by the middle classes, has led to corruption and brutality in deprived neighbourhoods. Ahmed Abutaleb began by telling Paul Henley about the teenagers getting caught up in the drug trade as couriers for the cocaine shipments arriving in Rotterdam from South America. We call them those front soldiers as they have to remove cocaine from containers in the port. And these youngsters sometimes can get up to $10,000, $20,000, $30,000, $150,000 if you succeed in selling pin code that is needed to get access to certain areas. That is the big problem. It's poisoning the neighborhood's economy and it's working negative in terms of motivating kids to stay at school. How dangerous is it potentially to speak out the way you are doing? We know that people connected to high-profile trials have been murdered in previous cases, don't we? I'm not working on individual cases I'm pleading for general policy development to deal with this issue. I'm never involved in debating individual cases in courts or in newspapers. I stay away from that. What would you like to see change at a grassroots level? Would police persistently prosecuting middle-class drug users change things, really? Well, we're not only prosecuting poor people working for little money in neighbourhoods, to be front soldiers. We're also prosecuting big names in the Netherlands. What I need is that governments in Europe strongly condemn the use of cocaine and, and also try to explain that this is dangerous and be aware that the combination of cocaine with the upcoming synthetic drug fentanyl is killing people. So we'll probably go back to the 70s and 80s when on the streets of Europe we found people dying from the use of heroin. So I'm really afraid if we accept and more use of cocaine as a normal thing, that will be a big problem in the future. There is an alternative approach, isn't there, from some interested in combating organised crime. The mayor of Amsterdam, for instance, has mm. said the sale of cocaine and other drugs should be decriminalised and regulated in order to squeeze out the criminals. Regulated means you need a regulator. But don't forget that this organised crime organisation... This is a way of living for them. If we take them this source of income, they will move to another source of income. Weapons, human trafficking. These people don't want to be tired by working. They want to get the money while they are in the swimming pool somewhere in a warm country. This will not help to bring crime down in our society. What works better to stop a banker at a party taking cocaine on a Saturday night? An information campaign saying how many lives are being ruined or a, a genuine threat of arrest and prosecution and prison? I think both. And I'm not naive. Using drugs exists in societies since the existence of humanity on Earth, so it will never be zero. Well, what I want is to contain it, to bring it back to an acceptable level that law enforcement agencies can deal with it. 40,000 people in Rotterdam are using cocaine per night. That's too big. I want to bring it back to acceptable numbers and what is acceptable that is for society to be debated. Ahmed Abutaleb, the mayor of Rotterdam.
And let's return to our main story, the war between Israel and Hamas. It's stirring up tensions in countries thousands of kilometres away and affecting events worlds away from a military conflict. Now Israel has agreed to revise the lyrics of its entry to the Eurovision Song Contest after organisers took issue with verses that appear to refer to the attack by Hamas on October the 7th. The rules of Eurovision ban content that could be considered political, as Ella Bicknell reports. Eurovision's organiser, the European Broadcasting Union, prides itself on putting on a non-political event. However, Israel's participation is proving controversial this year. Musicians across Europe have written letters calling for Israel to be suspended. It's partly due to opposition to Israel itself because of the war in Gaza, but also because it's alleged that the lyrics in its entry, called October Rain, made political references to the Hamas attacks at an outdoor music festival on October 7th last year, which sparked the war. Israel's entrant is 20-year-old Eden Galan, who won a public vote in a national talent show, singing hits from the likes of Whitney Houston and Aerosmith. But the lyrics in October Rain were said to include lines such as there's no air left to breathe and there were all good children, each one of them. It's also reported that the song included the word flowers, a term that Israeli defence forces allegedly used to mean fallen soldiers. Israel originally stated it would withdraw from the competition if there were any attempts to censor its entry. However, following a request from the president, Isaac Herzog, the national broadcaster now says it's agreed to make changes. It says it's asked the song's writers to revise their lyrics while also preserving their artistic freedom. This year's contest takes place in the Swedish city of Malmö in early May. For the time being, we expect to see Israel among the acts. Ella Bicknell. And that's it from us for now, but there'll be a new edition of the Global News podcast later. If you want to comment on this podcast or the topics covered in it, send us an email. The address is globalpodcast at bbc.co.uk. You can also find us on X at Global News Pod. This edition was mixed by Caroline Driscoll. The producer was Carl Josephs. The editor, as ever, is Karen Martin. I'm Valerie Sanderson. Until next time, bye-bye.